That was terrific, Des. Thank you so much for that. What a great blessing and what a great setup for us to look at a topic today that continues the bigger picture that I set last week. And the bigger picture is that Christ is not desiring to just find followers and he's not just desiring to find people that will be involved in a contractual relationship with him, but he is looking for people that will be his bride. And he's looking for you to be his bride. Let's pray together. Father, bless the youth as they go out this morning, I pray, just enrich their lives. We thank you so much for our young people. Speaking to them, I pray, as they share fellowship and come around your word together. And Lord, I thank you for that song of love which launches us so wonderfully into the song of songs about love. And I pray that as we both delve into your word, I pray we will be very conscious of the power of the Holy Spirit ministering water in our souls today. I'm going to ask you just where you are, where you're praying now. There is a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, and I believe he wants to bring alive his word to you, not just to interest your mind, but he wants to water you. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence with us. Amen. This song of songs, the song above every other song, the song that captures the story so beautifully and so wonderfully. I'm going to go into week two now, talking about the one I desire. And I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a few questions. They're sort of the same question, but just going to realms of different levels of depth. The first question is, does God like you? Often we know Jesus loves me, this I know, but does he like you? Does he just put up with you? Is tolerance a real high level of God's quality? And does he love you because he has to? Because he's contractually obliged? Because he made a commitment that he would love everybody? And is that why he loves you? Is it something about his character, his DNA, his faithfulness, that he says, I love you. But really, he doesn't really like you very much. With this Song of Songs, what it shows us is that we're not just loved. We're not just liked. We are desired. That is a whole new level. See, I've been married 30 years almost now, and if in those 30 years we woke up every morning and said to each other, well, here's another day of our marriage where we're contractually obliged by the promises we made at the altar, um, we better just get on with it, hadn't we, and let's try and find a way to tolerate one another. It wouldn't be a recipe for a very good or happy marriage. But the, the depths of a good relationship, the depths of 
a flourishing relationship, it really requires desire to long for one another. Does God desire you? Does he long for you? We all know those verses, as the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul longs after you, O God. But could God sing that over you? As the deer pants for streams of water, God is saying, I long for you. See, this is very significant for how we understand who we are. And I pray that as we look through this song of songs, our eyes will be open to the Spirit to experience what the, the author, Brennan Manning, who wrote a number of terrific books, one of them he wrote was called The Furious Longing of God. He longs for you with a ferocity and a life that is untamed and unquenchable. He desires you. This song is so special and powerful that a rabbi living in the first century, Rabbi Akiba, he said this, regarding the placing of the Song of Songs in the Jewish Bible. He said, all the ages are not worth the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all the writings are holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. There's something incredibly sacred around this book. It is edgy, it might feel soppy, it might have edges to it that feel like they cause a blush to rise on your cheeks, but it's a holy book. And I'm going to give you, just as a further background information to, this, to the context of you being a bride and Christ being a bridegroom, I'm going to give you three ways that this book can be read as a further demonstration or a background to help us. First of all, this book can be read as a song, as a poetic song that was written by King Solomon to his wife. If you read it that way, you will be completely right in doing so. But there's a second way of reading it, and that is that this is a love song written as an analogy for God's story with Israel. And there's a lot in there that when you understand that as a context, makes sense. Some of the flattery that's given to the young woman, and that's what we refer to the lady in this song, some of the flattery that's given to her doesn't sound very flattering. You've got a neck like a tower. <laughs> but when you understand that this was written to um, to partly unpack God's story with Israel, you begin to see that there's symbolism of the temple and so on in there. But there's a third way of reading this. And you'd be right in understanding all three of these to be true concurrently. And the third way is that it's a love song written as an analogy of God's love for you. 
It can be read in all three ways correctly. If we read about this love song between Solomon and his bride, we learn and derive lessons about how we conduct earthly relationships and how intimate, intimacy is appropriate. If we read it as a story of God's love with Israel, we see lessons on God's history with that great nation. And if we read it as a love letter to us, we see a revelation of God's desire and intimacy for us. The book is full of desire. It's full of a longing between two lovers. But there's a problem. And the problem is this. The two lovers don't seem to be well matched. Over the years, people have seen Nita and I together. And there's a question I've been asked a few times, more times than I would like to acknowledge. How did you get her? Well, maybe if you see photographs of when I was 16, when I first met her, and I had hair, and I looked like someone from Boyzone back in those days, before I lost the hair, I thought, I need to get married quickly, as I'm not going to hold on to this young lady. But there is an understanding in the humor of that statement that people seem to find matches that make sense. And that's happened in lots of ways. It's happened with physical attraction, with looks. It's happened with social economic status. There have been so many things. You know, in old English history, there would have been an understanding that you marry just a little bit up your class or a little bit below, but you don't stray to another class to get married, that there is an understanding of an appropriate match. And in this story, there is not an appropriate match. Let's look at some of the reflections, and for ease of consistence of conversation, I'm going to call the lady in the song the young woman, and I'm going to call the man in the song the young man. Song of Songs, chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. This is the young woman speaking, and she says these words. I am dark, but beautiful. O women of Jerusalem, I'm dark as the tents of Kedar, dark as the curtains of Solomon's tents. Don't stare at me because I am dark. The sun has darkened my skin, my brothers were angry with me, and they forced me to care for their vineyards. So I couldn't care for myself, my own vineyard. I love that we absolutely know that in the words of the great justice freedom fighter Martin Lloyd King Jr., he said these words, all men are created equal. And skin color, background, social economic status, body shape, nothing takes away from the equal value of one another. And I love here that this is not a story where she's referring to the color of her skin as something that marks her as devalued. 
She is making this as a statement because in the context of this story, she is expressing that she was oppressed by her brothers. She was taken advantage of because she was vulnerable. We don't know whether her dad was alive, but we do know that her brothers manipulated her, took advantage of her, and got her to work on the farm. And as a result of that, she spent many hours under the sun doing hard labor. And as a result of that, her skin was darkened. The reference to the color of her skin is nothing to do with a reference to race. The reference to the color of her skin is a reference that she was oppressed. And as a result of that, unsuitable, unlovely, undesirable. Because the women of her day who had the most social status in society, the women of her day that the king would normally advance his love towards, would have all been unused to working hard labor. They wouldn't have been in the situation of being vulnerable like the young woman in this story. And as a result, their skin was fair. Her vulnerability had caused her to be exploited by her brothers. And as a result, she did not match up to the expectations of beauty at that time. Now, let's talk about beauty. Because generations seem to reinterpret what the definition of beauty is, don't they? So, some past generations might say that a man's physique should be lean and thin. An athletic, another generation might say, you should be buff and muscular. Some generations might say, big hips is the thing. Other generations might say, no, it's small hips. Can I say this? Some generations say, big breasts. I've said it. And I'm going to give the other one, small breasts. Big bums, small bums, big lips, small lips, curly hair, straight hair. Every generation has a way of interpreting what its norms of beauty are to look like. I'm just really pleased that right now, the fashion with men is bald, slight beard and glasses. Oh, to be alive in such a time as this. But in the early part of this song, she is experiencing something and reflecting something that you and I have all experienced. And that is that she does not fit in with the expectations. Sure, we have a room full of people online who know exactly what it feels like to not fit in with expectations. As a result of that powerful, powerful desire within us to fit in, to be liked, to be desired, to be loved, today's world has created some very, very challenging and specific ways that you can attend to those desires. There's a whole multi-billion pound industry created around it. You want your lips bigger, you can have Botox. If you want your lines sorted out, you can have some treatment. 
Spend this money on creams and deal with those wrinkles. If you want big breasts, we can sort that out. If you want them reduced, we can sort that out. If you want tattoos, we can sort that out. We can take them off afterwards as well. If you want to be smaller, we'll give you a diet. If, we want to, if you want plastic surgery, we'll do that for you. If you want hair transplant on your bum and put on your head, we'll do that for you. <laughs> Whatever it takes. For those who want to dabble in less extreme measures, of course, we have filters that can just smooth things out a little bit, can just suck the waistline in a little bit. And what's behind this is a desire to fit in, to not miss out on society's expectations. We love compliments, we love positive words of affirmation, we love approval. It's quite addictive because deep down within we feel like we're misfits. Deep down within we feel like we do not fulfill the expectation. So the reason you crave for the likes on your post on social media is because just for a moment, just for a moment, it makes you feel less insignificant. And it releases some endorphins in you that make you feel okay. Maybe I'm just okay. But it fades away until the next post. At the root of it, we feel like we don't fit in. And this young woman is longing to be liked. She's longing to be loved and she's longing to be special. But she's vulnerable. She doesn't fit into those society norms. But listen to the reply of the young man. In verse 8, there's five words he speaks over in the NLT version. He says this. Oh, most beautiful woman. That's four. Said that wrong in the first service. That's four. Oh, most beautiful woman. The king, the influential one, the most honored and respected person in the nation, a reputation around the globe, looks at this vulnerable woman and says, oh, most beautiful one. But she is painfully aware of just how far she misses her own expectations, never mind those of others. But she is seen, spotted, desired, longed for, affirmed as most beautiful by the young man. Ask a question about these words of the young man. Are they just flattery? Are they compliments just to try and win some favor? Is he trying to seduce her, take advantage of her? Is he seeing a vulnerability? Think if I say a few nice things to her, it will help get me in there. Are these words being espoused simply to help the emotional fragility of this vulnerable and downtrodden young woman? Is there kindness at its root? Is there manipulation at its root? 
Is there flattery in its root? What's at the root of the young man expressing these words? Let's put it back on one of the three ways we can read this book. Is it God speaking over you and saying, even though you know you're messed up, you are most beautiful? And why does God say that? What's he after? Is he after your money, your time? He's got it all. He doesn't need your money. Is he after your time? Listen, you weren't around during creation. I think he managed pretty well. I don't think he needs our time. He's not trying to reel us in with nice words to entrap us, to further manipulate us in our vulnerability. So why is he doing this? Why is he doing it to this woman? Well, I think probably like me, you're aware of your ugliness inside. Not your physical beauty, but the condition of your heart. Do you know, I find that even when I do the right things or say the right things, that it still involves a battle to get there. The heart still feels ugly. There's a contest. And even when I think, wow, I did the right thing, that I won that battle, I'm still aware of the ugliness of what's inside. And when you stand next to someone who's really beautiful, doesn't it make you feel more inadequate? Like if you've got a set of dumbbells at home and every morning you have a routine for 10 minutes, you just lift and curl your dumbbells and you stand in front of your mirror, you think, gosh, my guns, they're growing. I can see a little line there. Come on. And then you go to a gym and there's a bodybuilder at the gym with their top off. You could grate cheese on their, on their six-pack. And you stand next to them. Do you feel stronger and more muscular for standing next to them? Or do you feel less muscular than you did earlier on? I think we feel less muscular. And this is part of the dilemma about God. I think this young lady, the closer she got to her lover the more aware of her vulnerability and ugliness she was. So how does that work? How does it work that as we come closer to the lover of our souls, we become more aware of his beauty, but more aware of our contrasting ugliness? As the young woman hears these words, oh, most beautiful woman, she's not sure if she believes it. I think we got a lot of people in the church here who are not sure if you believe it. You're happy with Jesus loves me. You're happy with he saved you, that there's a happy day in your life. But to believe that God could long for you, you're not sure. And it feels like the closer, the more time you spend in prayer, the, the, the more ugly you become aware of what's inside. It's easier not to spend time with him sometimes. 
and pretend to lift those little dumbbells on our own in front of the mirror and think the guns are not bad. But I'm about to show you something. Because in chapter 2, verse 1, this is her expressing that she knows she's loved, but she doesn't think she's special. The young woman says these words. I am the spring crocus, blooming on the Sharon plain, the lily of the valley. Oh, that sounds pretty nice. I'm a flower. Others say the rose of Sharon. I'm a flower. I'm something beautiful. You know, if somebody gave you some lilies or some crocus of Sharon, some rose of Sharon, you'd, you'd be pretty chuffed and you'd put them in a vase and it'd be all nice. So it sounds like she's accepting the love here. But let me tell you how this is a sign that she didn't quite believe the lover, the young man. Because on the rose of Sharon, because on the plains of Sharon, there would have been a carpet of lilies and a carpet of roses that would have literally been millions of them. She was saying, okay, I'm loved, but I'm not special. I'm one of millions. Maybe you love feeling anonymous in a large church. Maybe you love feeling anonymous online. Maybe you understand that the bride of Christ is the church of Jesus around the globe, and that's absolutely true. But to understand that his affections zone in on you right now is a step too far. I'm a lily. I'm beautiful. But I'm one of millions. Seven billion people on the planet, and I'm one of them. Of course, God, you love everybody. But I'm not special. I don't stand out. I don't have anything special in my life that would make you attractive to me. Attracted to me. In your moments of insecurity, do you try and deflect the attention you're getting by pointing to the vastness of the options that might be around you? Let me tell you an example. I've, I don't think I've ever been a likely candidate for ministry. God called me when I was 15 years of age to serve the church. But I didn't think I was a likely choice. I, you know, I know I've said this before. I think some of you don't believe it because you only see me in the context of speaking on the stage and speaking to people after service. But really, you know, if I do psychometric testing, I'm, I'm introverted. That's, that's my character. And, um, and that's, that has some challenges about ministry when you're introverted doesn't rule you out, but it means there's some things you've got to overcome. And some of those insecurities about, not, not my introvertedness, but I've had other insecurities around my life. I, I've never really thought I was very good. And when I was, I, it's not stopped me. I'd rather, be, I'd rather be average and obedient than brilliant and disobedient. But for 10 years, I was leading a national youth ministry, and I was traveling around to different churches every week to speak, itinerant speaker. And I would get phone calls 
And they would say, Mark, we'd love you to come and speak at our church on a certain date. And I'd check my diary if I could do it. So I'd love to come and be a part of your church and be an honor and a blessing to serve you. But do you know, there was something inside that wanted to say something different. I wanted to say, I know you phone me, but I could give you a long list of people who would do it better than I will. Can I give you their number? I'm not exaggerating. That's honestly an expose of some of the insecurities in my heart. I've never relished the thought of preaching. It bemuses me sometimes. I, you know, I've known people over the years who just think, wow, I've got an opportunity to preach. I'm thinking, oh, I've got an opportunity to preach. Never really got it. Bible tells us, in fact, we've been looking at our daily Bible plan that if you teach, we'll be judged more harshly. Do you know, while all you are playing games in heaven, I'm going to be stood at the front of a queue facing a grilling about everything I've said on a Sunday. It's going to be challenging. I hope I hear him say, well done. But there's insecurities in all of us, isn't there? Why would you choose me? Why would you love me? Why would you bless me? There are people far more deserving. But listen to the young man's reply. Verse 2. Like a lily among thistles is my darling among young women. (laughs) You're not part of this carpet, this landscape. They just blend in. His love with laser focus spots you, sees you, and falls in desirous love with you. All of the other strategies we put in our life to try to deal with our insecurity to try and deal with our sense of not fitting in. All of those craving for a social media presence to get more followers and more likes. All of that money you spend on your new clothes and your presentation. All of those attempts to be a nice person so that people will say nice things about you. They all are but shadows compared to hearing these words. You are a lily among the thistles. He loves you. He replies by saying, you stand out. You have my attention. My eyes are drawn to you among the many millions. I see you first. Among the vast array of beauty, you capture my heart. Oh, but God, what about my ugliness? It's there, it's real. What about my ugliness? I'm filled with shame, I'm broken, I'm riddled with regrets, 
and failures. I am vulnerable. Do you know, over the years, I think I've noticed that there's a strength that I have that it feels like a God grace on my life, and it's this. I find it fairly easy to see the good in people. I love it. I love when I sit with people. I love to see what's in their life. I think over the years I've spotted things that others might have missed. I love that sometimes I've had criticism from other leaders, that the people who come to the church here with checkered backgrounds. And they say, don't you know about their background? And I say, oh yeah, I do. But look what God can do with them. Look at the new start they've got. I just love it. I generally don't see write-offs. I see opportunities. I don't see limitations. I see possibilities. Is that what the young man is doing to the object of his affection here? Is he just choosing to ignore the ugliness because he's got a propensity to see only the good? Well, my strength has a flip side weakness. All strengths do. If you're really good at something, there will be a negative aspect of that. My negative aspect is I don't see sometimes the issues that need to be attended to because I'm too busy seeing the good. Over the years, I've learned that when I'm interviewing people for jobs, I've been on various interview panels over the years, panels are the way forward for me because I'd give everybody the job. Yeah, they could do that. Yeah, they could do that. Oh, look at the strength. Oh, they'd be wonderful at that. It's not what we advertise for, but they'd be brilliant. So I need a panel. I need some people who will look and think, actually, some issues here. Oh, there. Oh, great. If I ignore those, if I, if I carry on only seeing the good, that's lovely. That will draw something things out of them. But if we don't see the ugliness and the weakness, it will explode. So surely the lover here is not just closing his eyes to the ugliness and choosing to see just beauty. Surely there's something else going on because God does not overlook or turn a blind eye. He doesn't just choose not to see our ugliness. No. In fact, we read that God is really articulate in his word about our ugliness. We read that we were dead in our trespass and sin. We read that the scripture says that we have gratified the selfish and sinful longings within us. And the Bible also says that such sin deserves judgment. Of course, justice means that when justice, when laws are broken, of course it means that that deserves judgment. But, ah, look at this but. Different but to the ones I was talking about earlier on, so be careful. This but, grace. Say that word after me, would you? Grace. Grace. Oh, it's a word we're so familiar with. His undeserved, unmerited, furious longing 
surprises us, finds us, sweeps us off our feet, transforms us into a lily among the thorns. But just like the lilies of the field didn't clothe themselves in their beauty, there's not a conference for lilies on December the 31st that says, here are three steps on how to become a more beautiful lily in the new year. No lily can make a decision or do anything that will transform its beauty to a new level. Its beauty is given by another. It's given by the creator. And the beauty that you and I have in our life that's caught the attention of the lover of our soul, that's pinpointed us, that spots us as a lily among the thorns, that beauty comes on the train of grace. In fact, the Bible puts it this way. It says our best efforts are just like filthy rags. But his clothing is pure, spotless, beautiful, and wonderful. We see time and time again God clothing his people. Adam and Eve, he made some garments out of skin to clothe their nakedness and their shame. And he's been doing that ever since. Clothing our shame. Covering our weakness healing our brokenness. Mercy has triumphed over judgment. And he looks at you and he says, oh, most beautiful one. Of course, we're aware that we are works in progress. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to his completion. Dane Ortland, the author of the brilliant book, Gentle and Lowly, he said, it's not the absence of sin that is the key mark of regeneration, but it's the hatred of sin. The new birth grants a new direction, not a new perfection. Listen to these words. You are not vulnerable. You are not ugly. You are not one among billions you are, oh, most beautiful Amen. one. And as the young woman receives these words of desire, as she accepts the longing of the young man, she is changed. She no longer resists his advances, but she embraces his advances. His love touches something so deep within her soul that she is awakened Verse 3 and 6, 3 to 6 says, Like the finest apple tree in the orchard is my lover among other men. I sit in his delightful shade and I taste his delicious fruit. He escorts me to the banquet hall. It's obvious. Look at that word. It's obvious. It is obvious how much he loves you. Never mind apples on a tree. What about a savior on a cross? It's obvious how much he loves you. Never mind a body put in a tomb. What about a body out of the tomb? Ascending to heaven. Now stand at the right hand of the Father. Make an intercession and praying that the bride who is being made spotless and beautiful will one day gather together in marriage. It's obvious. 
how much he loves me. What a transformation. Oh, I pray. I tell you what, if we could get this, the church would be so, so much further forward. If we could all in our hearts say, it's obvious how much he loves me. Oh, I'm having a difficult time. Where's the Lord? It's obvious how much he loves me. Oh, it's a difficult season. It's obvious how much he loves me. I feel a bit depressed today, but it's obvious how much he loves me. Oh, I've tried some new ventures and they haven't worked out, but it's obvious how much he loves me. If we could get this in our hearts, it will transform. And I know that it's not obvious to many of us. Because when we gather together for worship on a Sunday, sometimes it feels like pulling teeth. And that's no disrespect to you, that's disrespect to me as well. Because I'm among that. But if we knew, I am my beloved's and he is mine and his banner over me is love. Bring whatever this world has to offer and we can say, it is obvious that he loves me. It is obvious, church, we can stand tall, we can stand brave, we can stand strong because it is obvious how much he loves us. And there are great benefits to this. He strengthens me with his raisin cakes, refreshes me with apples. I am weak with love. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. You see, she has absolutely lost all her own strength right now. She is swooning. She is weak at the knees with love. But she is strong and secure in his embrace. And she's not resisting it. She embraces his advances. And as a result, she finds deep refreshing. Do you know, when we resist God's love, we resist his shade. When we resist his shade, we resist his refreshing. This is not just a theological truth to own. It's a sensory experience. Some traditions of the church may be less comfortable with the thought of it being a sensory experience. But I believe this book unashamedly talks about a God who is to be encountered, not just believed in. The young woman saw the apples. She felt the shade. She tasted the fruit. She received the strength and she embraced his refreshing. All of those things were experiences. But the apples were to be taken and tasted. It's not enough to know they're there. It's not even enough to be able to recite the promises of God from the scripture. You can know whole chunks of the scriptures and still not taste them. The goodness of God is to be taken. The promises of God are to fill our mouths and the refreshing juices are to refresh our souls. Many people enjoy cookery programs on TV, don't they? We see wonderful recipes being made in beautifully laid out kitchens. Some of them are competitions. Some of them, there'll be judges that will be presented with something that's been freshly baked, and they will give their feedback. But even in the midst of all the technological revolution we're in today, there are some weaknesses to watching a cookery program on TV. That is, you can't smell it, 
and you can't taste it. It may even cause you to feel hungry. It may even cause you to desire to eat something. But TV cookery programs will not satisfy you unless you taste it. In the days of YouTube preachers, in the days of online experiences, in the days of gatherings of church of God's people, expounded word that someone's prayed over and sweated over and read around, in these days when you can regularly go into an orchard and see the trees and see the fruit, God says, taste and see. Let's pray together. I see so many people who get stuck at an experiential dissidence of God's love. And I want to say, church, it's time to stop resisting. It's time to stop hiding. It's time to hear the lover of your soul call you, oh, most beautiful one. It's time to yield to this wild, unrestrained longing of God. It's time to let him clothe your shame and place his beautiful robes upon you. It's time to taste his goodness. It's time to be safe and secure in the shade of his succulent and refreshing fruitful orchard. I know there'll be various levels of challenge in this room with what I'm about to say. Some of those more alpha male types might think this is a bit mushy. Some who are filled with an intoxicating sense of inadequacy will just think it's unreachable. But I'm going to ask us to confess with our mouths, oh, how beautiful I am. And it's not a mantra. The more you say, the more you believe it. Before those words come out of your mouth, I want you to hear the truth of God's word over you today. And I want to encourage you to confess your response. Oh, I am beautiful. Could you say that? Say it again. Oh, I am beautiful. Oh, there's a grace of God all over that. Say it again. Just allow, allow it to be like water in your soul. Oh, I am beautiful. Your love covering all my unworthiness and my ugliness. As the band lead us in this next song, this old ancient hymn that used to be sang in the valleys of the Welsh revival here is love vast as the ocean I don't care whether you stand, sit, kneel lay, prostrate whether you sing or you're silent the posture of your body is less significant than the posture of your heart but I want to encourage you to partner with these words and say this is truth in my life I receive it let this song 
wash over you now as his son.